Hey there, do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Let's get to the show. This is Season 1, Episode 7, The Orange Badge of Courage. As he caught sight of them, the youth was momentarily startled by a thought that perhaps his gun was not loaded. He stood, trying to rally his faltering intellect, so he might recollect the moment when he had looted, but he could not. He got the one glance of the foe-swarming field in front of him and instantly ceased to debate the question of his piece being loaded before he was ready to begin, before he had announced to himself that he was about to fight. He threw the obedient, well-balanced rifle into position and fired a first wild shot. Directly, he was working at his weapon like an automatic affair. He suddenly lost concern for himself and forgot to look at a menacing fate. He became not a man, but a member. He felt that something of which he was a part, the regiment, an army, a cause, or a country, was in crisis. He was welded into a common personality, which was dominated by a single desire. For some moments, he could not flee. No more than a little finger can commit a revolution from a hand. There was a consciousness always of the presence of his comrades about him. He felt the subtle battle brotherhood more potent even than the cause for which they were fighting. It was a mysterious fraternity, born of the smoke and danger of death. Thanks to Ray Bader from Fiverr for reading those opening lines for me, which are from the novel The Red Badge of Courage, which is considered a seminal work of Civil War literature, although at the time Stephen Crane wrote it, he himself had never been in a battle. He famously said that he drew on the feeling he had while playing college football to color the experiences of his soldier characters. It wasn't until years later that he saw combat firsthand, working as a reporter covering the Spanish-American War. And sometime after that, he let his friend, the novelist Joseph Conrad, know that he felt, after all, like the descriptions in Red Badge were all right and stood up to these new experiences. This story about Stephen Crane always interested me. I first heard it when I was in college and was trying to be a writer and didn't myself have a whole lot of experiences to draw on. But I still wonder today if a modern writer could write as convincingly about battle, having only played football, for example, or laser tag, or paintball. When I arrived at college in the fall of 1989, I was inexplicably given a credit card by a too-trusting Discover company, which I immediately maxed out by purchasing a Brother word processor and 10 cases of a now-defunct beer called Hudipole Gold, or Hudi Gold, as we said back then. 
And one of the first things I wrote on that machine was an essay about guns. And I've tried mightily to find this essay so I could share some of it, but it does not appear to have survived the intervening life that has happened since I first went to college. I do remember that the essay was not about the fact of guns, not about having them, but rather of not having them. It began, as I recall, with an explanation that I was one of those kids whose parents did not allow him to have toy guns. No cap guns, no dart guns, definitely not a BB gun, not even Star Wars blasters. This proved a bit difficult for me because in our neighborhood, the kids often played guns, which was a game in which we split into two teams, the good guys and the bad guys, as it were, ran off and hid, and then had mock gunfights when our groups ultimately came upon one another. I always borrowed a cast-off pistol from somebody for this game, although there were more than a few times when I sported a tennis racket, which I turned into a gun by holding it up on my shoulder, aiming the handle, and making this noise. Pew, 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 pew. I can say for certain that my experiences playing guns with a tennis racket would never have provided me with the experiences I would need to write convincingly about battle, as football did for Crane. On top of the huge task of convincing myself and my friends that my tennis racket was indeed a shoulder-mounted rifle, there was no discernible finality when we played guns. When two groups would encounter each other, there'd be a lot of running and yelling, kids shouting, I got you, and you missed, and did not, I was right there. These arguments raged, both sides certain that their imaginary bullets found their mark before their opponent's bullets whizzed by overhead. Even at nine years old, I started to clue into how stupid playing guns was. Who got whom was ultimately decided as a matter of volume and a person's willingness to stick to their pretend guns. When I would concede to having been shot, I'd typically lean back against the nearest wall or tree trunk and close my eyes to indicate I was dead. I mean, it never seemed like getting shot with pretend bullets and having an argument about it was really worth flinging my body to the ground for a decent death rattle. You're dying all wrong, kids would yell at me. You can't die standing up. I found this an odd rule in a game in which I was transubstantiating a tennis racket into a shoulder rifle. This is how I die, I'd say, quietly but firmly. You can't die like that. You have to get on the ground. No, I'd say. I die standing up. That's just how I do it. When we played with squirt guns, this uncertainty over who got whom was lessened to some extent though it never disappeared entirely. Later, when laser tag was invented, I thought for sure the I got you, no you didn't argument would be laid to rest. But it was really only replaced by arguments over whether you were three feet away when you shot someone, or whether someone was or was not covering up their sensor. When I had my own kids, in particular my son, they had to face the same parenting question that my parents did around toy guns. It's a different time now, a time in which children sporting toy guns have been mistaken for the real thing, and have been shot by police for doing so. So any toy gun, even remotely similar to the real thing, was out in my book. Those little orange tips are too easy to miss in the evening dusk. But I was okay with blatantly toy guns for my kids. Bright yellow Nerf blasters, or hulking blue and white water guns. I knew one thing for sure. My kids weren't going to have to pretend a tennis racket was a rifle. And I thought, in the naive way that dads think things before they say them out loud and realize how crazy they are, I thought I was being a cool parent. In fact, not a cool parent, but the cool parent. Little did I know how wrong I was, as this short talk with my wife will clarify. Hi, Jody. Hi, Pete. Thanks for being on the show again. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Whenever you're on, I get feedback that people love you. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. 
So you're the big star. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what's happening in the other room? Uh, the fact that our 17-year-old son is watching anime with his girlfriend. Yeah. So it's his first girlfriend. Yeah. It's the first time that he's invited her over. Yeah. And so they have the big couch with the big TV. Yes. In the middle of the house. Yes. And we're hiding, where we can see everything. We're hiding out in the front office and occasionally going out there to get things. <laughs> well, I wasn't hiding out. I was grading papers in here. Okay. But I keep going to the laundry room to move things around. Sure. Okay. So here's what I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Today, I want to talk about the cool parent. Oh. Okay. Mm. Now, if you had to guess right now, today, who is the cool parent? Between us? Yes. It would be you. I would say it's neither of us at this time. Well, oh, no, not now. Not with teenagers, but when the kids were little, up until they became teenagers, it was you. Okay. So why do you think that? Mm, Because you always were having a lot of fun with them. You're at work, and then you got to come home and play with them and break all the rules. When they were real little, that's Mm -hmm. true. I would say that was my peak because you had to do the hard work of taking care of them and potty training them and getting them where they needed to be. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come home from work and I'd tie a bath towel around my neck and make it a cape and start building couch forts. Mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. <clears throat> you want to talk about busties? Yeah. So this busties is, if you don't know, it's a game where you take all of your bed pillows and you build them up in a door frame and then you run at it from across the room and you dive into it and bust through and you shout busties. And, and nothing uh, can go wrong. That's right. And so I used to play this game with the kids a lot, but they'd get so excited. <laughs> On more than one occasion, they both ran at the wall of pillows from opposite sides and basically clonked into each other head on. <laughs> and there were many tears. And then you came upstairs and banned Busties for life. <laughs> we haven't played Busties since. But if you have a kid below age six, I highly recommend you try playing Busties. Yes, it's really a good game for an only child. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think in those early years, I was the I was the cool parent, mm-hmm. but I think it changed. When? Uh, after they got out of elementary school. Hmm. So I always feel like I'm the the enforcer. Yeah, but for sure now I'm the disciplinarian. Yeah, that's true. You know, now that they're teenagers, and like I thought, oh well, I taught parking to drive. Maybe that makes me cool, but that was such a stressful experience. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing cool about it, right? It dialed down your cool points. So here's what I started to notice, though. Uh, first of all, when Parkin was seven, you bought him fireworks. Yeah. Do you remember that? He was in the mire, yeah. and you got him that giant thing of fireworks. Yeah, it's just smoke bombs, though. I know, I know. But well, that I was like not something I, I would ever bought him. Uh-huh. Then you started buying him those airsoft guns. Yeah. You know, which are like BB guns, basically. Yeah. Which I never had. Yeah. And never intended my children to have. Yeah. Do you remember what I did to him when I bought him the first one? Did you shoot him? Yeah. You made him, you (laughs) shot him in the back? Yeah. Why? So, because he was going to go out and shoot his friends with them. That's what they were doing. Uh And he had never done that before. So, I wanted him to know, hey, if you're going to be running around the neighborhood shooting kids, Mm -hmm. this is what it's going to feel like. Mm -hmm. I like... I like how you sort of couch that insanity in something responsible. Uh-huh. 
Um, I remember once he was going to his friends and I had to stop with him at Meyer to buy him ammo. Uh-huh. And I went into that aisle and I've never been in it before. And mm-hmm. it's all BB guns and hunting knives mm-hmm. and yeah. bows. And I was like... It's the zombie apocalypse aisle. I was like a fish out of water. I didn't even know it existed. Uh-huh. And, and like I think people just walking by are like, what's that guy doing in this aisle? Yeah. So, and I'm oddly comfortable in it. Yeah. So, so I think that got you a lot of cool parent points. Yeah. I don't think that... That stuff carries over, though. Okay, let's talk about animals. <laughs> Do the kids like animals? Yeah. And how many animals have you gotten in this house? Countless. Are we going to count the pocket pets? Oh, my gosh. I don't even want to... You mean I like mean, the hamsters yeah, and the like gerbils? Yeah, starting with the gerbils and the hamsters. There had to be at least 10 different hamsters and at least, I don't know, six different gerbils? Yeah. And then probably 10 birds. Parakeets, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the fish. And we've had multiple dogs. How many dogs Since do we have right now? Four. Four dogs, a cat, and a ferret. Yeah. Now, I was definitely opposed to the ferret. Yeah, you was, were opposed to the ferret. Opposed that to most, was actually most of that these That was animals. me. That yeah. ferret was all me. Yeah. And so I feel like with the animals, the cool parent dynamic shifted because dad became the no guy. <sighs> Yeah, I'm really starting to sound like the cool parent. Yeah, and think about this. They're teenagers now. You helped Parkin get his hair dyed green. Yeah. Do you think I ever would have done that? Nope. No. You and Mattis, you know, go shopping for stuff. Like, I, I once went into Hot Topic with her, and similar to the Meyer hunting aisle, I was like, what is this place? Why am I in here? This is the best interview ever. Yeah. I didn't know it was about how I became the cool parent. Yeah. So That's I'm awesome. just wondering what you think of the case to be made that if there's a cruel parent now it's you and it kind of right around middle school started to shift well uh from our point of view absolutely but from their point of view we both suck yeah that's all there is to it i guess we're like anvils like the thing that roadrunner would drop on wiley Coyote's yes head? the kids are like hot pokers <laughs> and they literally are hot pokers because they're full of hormones and rage and emotions and they're they're malleable they're hot metal if you touch it it'll it'll melt your skin into your bone i gotcha but and then one of us is the ammo and one's the hammer yeah i catch it and yeah do you think those roles change based on the situation yes absolutely because there's lots of times like when i lock down with mattis (laughs) where you back me off and same with you and parkin yeah like as they've become teenagers i think we've both identified more with our same-sex child because of the difficulties of adolescence. Yeah, and I think we both know in an insider sort of way what awaits that same-sex child in the world. Yeah. So not counting getting the fourth dog in the house, which happened yesterday. Um, what, do you mean the fourth dog that you named Petey? Yes, I'm calling him Petey at the moment. <laughs> um, what do you think the last cool parent thing you did was? Well, I don't know. Does taking Mattis to the stylist three times to get her highlights right count? And the last time was on Saturday at, at six in the morning. Six in the morning. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. I don't know if I that's don't know if cool. She re- it registers with her though. I don't know. You know, they're well, so used to us taking on places that. Yeah. What about um, with Parkin? I, I, I don't know if he thinks I'm cool. I don't think he does. I think he's just trying to get away from me as fast as possible at this point. I gotcha. Which is age and developmentally appropriate, but... Mm-hmm. 
He did rest his chin on the top of my head two days ago. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I held very still. It was like a sighting of a rare bird. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, well, it's getting awfully quiet out there. I think we need to go check the laundry. Okay. All right, thanks for being on the show again. It was my pleasure. (laughs) Okay, and how many more dogs do you think you'll get in this house? Um, Well, you made me sign a contract, so none. No more dogs. Okay. That's the end. Thanks, Buster. Talking about cool parent who's Uh a cool spouse. Not you. (laughs) I know. I have it in writing. Okay. (laughs) Bye, Bus. Bye, Bus. And a quick thanks to my wife, Jody for sitting down with me. It was a fun little interview. If you'd like to see a picture of our new dog, the fourth dog, whom I'm calling Petey, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Pete Brown Says. I'll be posting a picture of Petey sometime this week. Only on Instagram at Pete Brown Says. Cool parent or not, one thing I've noticed for sure as my kids became teenagers is how little they want to do with their dad or mom no matter how cool we were back in the toy gun buying years. They want to spend time with their peers. Their interests grow away from ours. And we struggle to find ways in which we can still connect with our kids outside the realm of day-to-day living and going to and from school and activities in the car. Which is why I was so excited to receive the text message from my son that I'm about to tell you about. I received this text in the midst of a drawn-out Tuesday afternoon while I was at work. One of those days where your brain is stretching to find something to focus on. Anything besides what sits before you as part of your actual job. Now usually when my son texts me, it's for one of three reasons. First, he's locked out of the house. This is a common occurrence for him. And after several years of trying to resolve it with different keychains, lanyards, key codes, and whatnot, I finally gave up and just decided to accept my son as someone who frequently locks himself out of the house. I've been much happier ever since. The second reason he texts me is because he needs a ride. I usually don't mind these texts, because once I get him home, I can go ahead and unlock the door for him as well. Two birds, one stone, as they say. The final reason he texts me is because he is hungry. Granted, as a teenager, he is hungry all of the time. But if he's really hungry, and all he can find in the house is the, uh, the healthy food his mother prefers... He'll reach out and see if I'm up for a trip to Burger King or a run for the border at Taco Bell. It doesn't seem to occur to my son that the middle of a workday on a Tuesday is a difficult time for me to break away from the office. And he often baits his request by dangling some crazy newfangled fast food menu item in front of it. Like, hey dad, Burger King has Lucky Charms milkshakes. Can we go? I'm hungry. From a strategic perspective, I can really admire his approach. He knows that the more oddball the menu item, the more interested in trying it I become. And who among us wouldn't want to be known as the parent who blows off work on a Tuesday afternoon to go and try Lucky Charms milkshakes? Now that's a cool parent. Unfortunately, more often than not, I'm not cool. I put him off for a few hours. I'm tied up at work, I'll text. Maybe later. That is not a cool parent response, but it is the pay the mortgage response, which often overrules the heart's desire in life. I will say, the one time I did hasten my work so I could get home and take him out was when Burger King announced they had developed Cheetos that were stuffed with macaroni and cheese. Now I'm talking like actual macaroni and cheese inside of an actual Cheeto. I mean, I didn't even believe my son when he brought it up. Like, didn't believe him because, you know, like of the laws of physics and stuff. But he sent me a link, and sure as damn hell, Burger King food scientists, let's be honest, probably from the stoner food division, have made some sort of miraculous breakthrough on the food front, and have solved the ages-old problem of how to get macaroni and cheese 
inside of a puffed orange Cheeto, which is to say they solved the greatest problem mankind didn't know that we had. Cheetos are back. Cheetos flavor on the outside. Creamy mac and cheese on the inside. Only at Burger King. But the text message I'm referring to now, the one that precipitates this story, did not fit into any of the three usual categories that prompt my son to text me. Instead, it said, Dad, watch this video. Very important. Can we go? The link he provided me was to a video posted by a popular YouTuber in the world of Nerf gun modifications, which is a subgenre of YouTube video that is pretty popular with my teenage son and his peeps. In the video, the YouTuber was describing what, from his account, would be an epic game of humans versus zombies that would take place across the upcoming weekend on a college campus that was about 60 miles south of where we live and is also, as it happens, my alma mater. One of the places that I've talked about with such love in my voice that my wife now derisively refers to it as the oasis of my soul. I just booked a room, I texted back. To which he responded only with those little points of ellipsis that tell you someone is trying to compose a text message. Because, I assume, he was picking his jaw up off the floor. So, humans versus zombies a la Nerf dart guns. Here's how I learned that it works, more or less. The, the game begins with a small group of zombies who wear a bandana on their head. The much larger group of humans, armed with Nerf dart guns, are given missions to complete that typically involve coordinating with each other and marching across the mostly empty campus. A group of very dedicated volunteer moderators tag along to ensure that the rules are followed and everyone remains safe. The zombies will attempt to tag you. These are not slow shuffling, walking dead style zombies. They're World War Z style, or I am legend if you will. Fast, smart, driven zombies. If you shoot them with one of your orange tipped nerf darts, or if you throw a rolled up sock at them, the preferred weapon of a so-called sock ninja, they take their bandana off and are out of the game until the next spawn point, which are usually set to happen every five minutes or so during a mission. If you get tagged full palm by a zombie, then you become a zombie for the rest of the weekend. So as the game proceeds across three days, the numbers of humans begin to dwindle and the numbers of zombies begins to grow. By the end of the weekend, if the game has been planned just so, only a small contingent of humans remain to perform a last stand against what I learned would be an unruly and brains-hungry zombie horde. Those are the basics, anyway. When we arrived on campus, I learned that first of all, many humans take their Nerf dart gun modifications pretty seriously, amping up the power, adding motorized firing mechanisms, and velcroing custom clips all over their bodies. There's an entire room of these small one to three person companies who sell custom parts to make these modifications. One vendor let me test fire an automatic machine gun, and in the few seconds I had pulled the trigger, an LED counter built into it informed me that I had fired 23 darts. 
I laughed out loud with the sheer joy and absurdity of it all. Because modders, as they're known, spend a lot of time and effort and money in building their guns, you can imagine that they want to stick around long enough as humans to give their weapons a good workout. My son, just wading into the modding world, though having watched what I can only believe are hundreds of hours of YouTube videos on how to do this, had added a second spring to his rifle, effectively doubling its distance and power. The mods can get so powerful, in fact, that part of checking into the game involves you getting your gun certified, which you do by firing a dart through a chronometer to confirm that it is under the rule set limit of 130 feet per second, which, in case you're wondering, is pretty damn fast for a nerf dart to travel. These nerf guns are, I assure you, some seriously impressive weaponry built by the 15 to 30 year old set. Note that I do not mention the 40-year-old set, nor even the 46-year-old set, which includes me, because by my visual estimate, I was the oldest of the 500 or so players that weekend, by a good 15 years. When I shot my $7 bought at Walmart on the drive-down pistol through the chronometer, the official kind of chuckled. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, It's really cool you're doing this. In the empathetic way, I suppose, that those polar bear idiots who jump into Lake Michigan in January must say to the inevitable 85-year-old guy who shows up to join them and always makes for great visuals on the evening news. Smaller crowds headed to Milwaukee's lakefront for the annual polar plunge into Lake Michigan. Man, that just makes me cold looking at it. After certifying our weapons, we gathered in a large lecture hall and underwent a fairly lengthy safety briefing. Then the zombies left and we were given our first mission. The microphones weren't working in the lecture hall, by the way, so the speakers used what appeared to be a toy megaphone so we could all hear them. I don't know why, but that odd detail really lent the briefing a strange veneer of surreality. By this time, it was late Friday evening. Darkness had fallen across the campus and thunderstorms were rolling through. The humans were to make our way across campus, finding along the way eight marked stuffed garbage bags that we would throw on a cart that we towed along with us. Once we had found all the bags, the mission would be over. So some 200 or more humans head out in the rain, big, cold drops of rain that capture the streetlight's glow, lighting up for the briefest of instants before falling to the ground. As you might expect, 200 armed with Nerf gun people who have just met and have no discernible command structure can be a bit of a mess. Some people claim authority by shouting loudly, others by the sheer sight of their rotted up Nerf weaponry they have hanging all over their bodies. The rain picks up as we more or less form a group around the cart, with smaller groups up front and trailing behind. Our route takes us down what, on a nice day, are picturesque trails between the campus greens, but in the dark night, in a downpour, with the threat of zombies about? Well, it's kind of nerve-wracking. Heads on swivels, people! Someone near me yells every few seconds. Watch those bushes! I try to stay with my son, figuring, right if nothing side, else, I could watch his back with my long, my pathetic, stock, unmodded Nerf six. pistol. The first zombie attack explodes from a fairly large hey, stand of bushes. Shouts from the point group rise up into the night. Your adrenaline spikes if you're back by the cart and you aren't yet sure what's happening. Hey, watch your six! A person yells in my ear. Zombies six. ahead! It turns out that this first charge is from a relatively small horde and the zombies are quickly darted by some of the more impressive automatic nerf guns. Once shot, they begin trailing behind us, waiting to respawn. This forces us to split our attention to the front and to the back. Bushes ahead, heads on swivels, people, heads on swivels. A larger horde meets us as we are crossing a main road onto West Green. 
Here I learned the basic zombie strategy is to attack in numbers. Those in front pretty much sacrifice themselves so that a zombie behind them can get in a full palm tag. It's pretty effective and we lose a good number of humans in this charge. Keeping an eye on this larger horde, we back our way down a ramp to walk through an underground parking garage. And this is where all hell breaks loose. With pillars and pylons everywhere, zombies have plenty of hiding spots and they come at us from all directions. Any order the humans were following vanishes, although we try to stick together. Small groups occasionally getting pinned in corners where they hold out for as long as they have ammo. But the numbers are shifting quickly, especially as another horde emerges to block our exit. Here's something I learned about the zombies and the humans who become them. They are salty. I guess either angry at being killed or relieved that it's over. People throw themselves into zombieing with their full hearts and some grade A trash talk. During one charge, they manage to grab one of the bags off our cart and then they pass it around the horde where various zombies pretend to have intercourse with it. What do we want? The zombie leader shouts. Brains! The horde returns. When do we want them? He shouts. Brains! The horde responds. In the chaos, I get separated from my son and try to find a human with one of those sweet automatic weapons that I can duck in behind. The horde grows quickly and gets bolder and more aggressive as their numbers rise. A group of remaining humans forms up around the cart and makes a plan for a covered march to the exit. The horde forms up in response, blocking the way, creating a standoff. Zombies hurling ever more creative insults at us. That's when we all hear a zombie leader behind and above us shout, Get him! Everyone's head turns. I turn and look up, and there I see my son on a ramp between two levels. A horde is approaching from the bottom of the ramp, and a second horde is turning in from the top. My son, lit by the fluorescenty blue garage lighting, dripping with rain, right in the space no parent wants their child to inhabit, stuck literally between a rock and a hard place. My firstborn, my boy, my beautiful curly-haired boy, who used to call the end of a train a boost. He appears to me as both 16 and 6 at the same time, if that makes sense. Both teen and toddler, equal parts able and vulnerable. I break from my group to try and reach him, maybe take out some zombies from behind. As the two hordes approach him, he steps forward and glances over the edge at what would be about a 12 foot drop to the concrete below. We all see him contemplating it. We are all thinking it ourselves. The moderators, who are, after all, trying to keep people safe, we're shouting no, presumably because a smashed up teenager makes for a rough start to the weekend. This teenager, my only son, my boy. He glances quickly at the hordes approaching on either side, and then I see his body change as he makes his decision. Like it's locking down, decided and resolute. He reaches out with his pistol in one hand, pointing down at one horde, and his rifle in the other, pointing up. He begins firing as quickly as he can just as both groups charge. And in a few seconds, it's over. All over. My boy. My firstborn. The one who called the end of a train a boost. Gone. Brains, shouts the horde that had been watching from the lower level. Brains, returns the horde that has killed him. As the zombies clear off the ramp, I see my son, now down on one knee, preparing to tie his bandana on his head. 
I jog up and take a knee beside him, patting him on the back. Hey kiddo, I say. I notice, quite honestly and somewhat embarrassingly, that I am crying. They got me, Dad, he says, and my heart drops. Legit drops. I'm a zombie now, he says. I know, kiddo, I tell him, and then to cheer him. But it was epic. The entire game was watching. Everyone saw it. I know, he says, but I can tell that this fact doesn't cheer him at all. I don't think he's crying, but it's difficult to tell in the rain. I'm crying, for sure. Quiet tears, flowing steady and unwelcome down my cheeks. It seems that he's fighting back some tears as well, as he looks up at me, the sick fluorescent parking garage light catching just half of his face, the rest left in shadow, caught between two worlds, human and zombie, boy and man. It's gonna be okay, I tell him. Don't you worry about it. And then I raise my pistol and shoot him in the face. really what happened. There was in fact the garage, the chaos, the salty horde, and my son caught between two groups of zombies on an elevated ramp. But as for me, I was long a zombie by this point, having gotten tagged just as we backed into the garage. So when I jogged up to my son and he said, they got me dead, I patted his back and I said, it's okay kiddo, you can put your guns in my backpack. And that's what I do, I put his guns and his darts in my backpack along with sunscreen and bug spray that I've packed, the fruit roll-ups and bottled water, the plastic bags that once held the rain ponchos we were at that moment wearing. It's not the cool parent move, after all. It's the practical dad, the one putting off a run to Taco Bell because his clients are waiting for a video or an email or a text. But you've got to be many different kinds of dad to each of your children, and it changes all the time. Some days, you get the horde, and some days, Brains. Well, my son and I played Humans vs. Zombies uh, all three days of the weekend. After that initial Friday night mission where almost everybody became a zombie, they reset the game. So we started over as humans on Saturday. I was killed two missions later and became a zombie, but my son as a human made it to the last stand. It turned out to be a lot of fun, a lot of walking, a lot of running. According to my iPhone, I, I think we walked or ran nine miles on Saturday and seven miles on Sunday. And I'll put some links in the show notes to this event and similar events like it in case you're interested. I, I also should probably mention that the moderators frown upon shooting people in the face. I didn't actually shoot them in the face. I just thought that was a, a better turn of phrase. But, you know, good times. Brown says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio. 
Written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Hake and Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Hey, everyone. I'm working on a story about crazy teachers. Do you have any crazy teacher stories? Head to PeteBrownSays.com, click Submit, and send it in. Good times. standing. Several are there. One down, two down, three down, four down, and it's over. It's over. One of us. One of us. One of us. All the zombies chanting one of us.